Hi, everybody. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us today. Hey, I have a pretty serious message to share in light of recent events in our nation and ongoing events in our nation. I feel compelled as a pastor to break from my normal ways of doing things to try to apply scripture as much as I can to what uh, people are experiencing now. I have a special concern for what people in my congregation, if you please, are experiencing now and for reasons that you'll hear over the next few minutes. I want to begin today by reminding us of the powerful promise and significant responsibility that impacts all of us who are joined to the body of Christ through the local church. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, a local church, and said, for as the body is one and has many members, speaking of the physical body, which has many parts, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. This week in our weekly staff team prayer meeting, we were discussing the death of George Floyd and the protests that are ongoing around our nation. One staff team member, a young African-American woman, began to cry and to talk about how a man in her family had experienced similar injustices and how this tragedy has triggered some of those memories in her and how she's feeling a lot of emotional pain and hasn't been able to sleep and so on. She is suffering immensely and I found myself fighting back tears. I suspect that the other 25 or so of us on that Zoom call were as well. Why? Well, as followers of Jesus joined together in a local church, we are members of one another. And if one of us is suffering, all of us are suffering. Paul wrote to the Romans, so in Christ we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. This is part of the promise and responsibility of being a Christian. The reality is that in light of all that has transpired in our nation in this past week or so, there are a lot of people suffering and there are a lot of our brothers and sisters in the Life Christian Church who are suffering. I think it's incumbent on all of us to say, you are not alone in your suffering. If you're suffering, all of us are suffering too because we're in this together. The implications of this, that when one of us suffers, all of us suffer, are particularly impactful in a church as diverse as ours. As most of you know, we are diverse in race, ethnicity, and nations of origin. We are diverse socioeconomically, a church of the haves 
and the do not yet haves. We are PhDs and GEDs. We are young and not so young. We are Catholics and Baptists and Presbyterians and Pentecostals and Lutherans and Methodists and more and a lot of previously unchurched people. We are doctors and nurses, educators and homeschoolers, lawyers and law enforcement officers. We are Democrats and Republicans, and I suspect a whole lot of independence. We are people at last count. It's actually been a couple of years since we counted this, but we are people at last count from 132 distinct communities in the New York City, New Jersey metro area. It takes a special kind of person to make a commitment to a church like this. Let's face it. It would be easier to be a part of a church where most of the people are like you. Similar backgrounds, experiences, and worldviews. Maybe people who look like you, who think like you do, who instinctively react, perhaps, to national events like you do, especially in a time like this. But we, the amazing people of the Life Christian Church, have decided to do something better than easy. We've decided to do something good and beautiful. We have decided to commit to an idea of church that is similar to the picture of the church in heaven. John, in his revelation of Jesus Christ, talked about being in the throne room, standing in the presence of God. And he said that there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they, all these people from all these different backgrounds, cried out in a loud voice, not voices, a loud voice. All these people cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, most of the time, being a part of a church like this with people from so many backgrounds is a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun together at the Life Christian Church, as most of you well know. But that doesn't mean it's always easy. I'm reminded of the saying that struggle is not fun, but it's better than fun. This is a time when we're engaged in something better than fun. We are engaged in shared suffering and all that comes with it, entering another's pain, having difficult conversations, carefully avoiding the multitude of opportunities for misunderstanding and offense, checking our own hearts to make sure that our hearts are pure before God and others. This is not easy nor fun, but it's good and beautiful. It's better than fun. So we share in one another's sufferings in many ways. I want to talk about that in a particular way in just a moment, but I just want to acknowledge that we share in one another's sufferings in many ways. You know, I think about um, Paulette Zerpoli, a beautiful member of our church who's in her sixth year of struggling against ALS. I think about her and her husband Steve and what they and their family have suffered through. And the reality is, as as they have suffered, our church family has suffered with them. I think about a woman in our church this week whose house burned down. 
I'm told, though actually uh, I haven't uh, verified this, but I'm told that her house burned down because she lit a candle in memory of George Floyd. She's a white woman who lit a candle in memory of George Floyd. Uh, somehow or another, uh, she had a house fire that, that, that caused her house to be severely damaged. When, when she suffers, we all suffer with her. I think about another woman in our church this past week who was in a serious car accident and is recuperating in the hospital even as I speak. I think about a family in our church suffering through a divorce. I think about anyone in our church suffering. When they suffer, we all suffer. This is part of being the body of Christ. When one person or family suffers, we all suffer. And so it is that when one group of people suffer, we all suffer. There isn't any single group of people who have a corner on suffering, sadly. Many immigrant groups, for instance, now and throughout our nation's history have struggled and are struggling to succeed in our society. Sadly, a number of people groups throughout our nation's history have suffered significant discrimination. But I think it's important to state, especially now, that the black population in this nation have suffered in a way that is unique to any other people group. And that much of what we have seen this past week or so is an uncovering of that suffering, the anger at injustice that is boiling over in our streets is the result of hundreds of years of painful history. Now, by the way, I probably need to say a couple of things before I go on. First, I am, of course, for peaceful protest. Secondly, I am against the destruction of property and violence. And third, I am for the vast majority of law enforcement personnel who risk their lives to serve and protect us every day, uh, some of whom are members of our TLCC family. But that's not my focus today. My focus today uh, is on this. Black people and those in solidarity with them, which I think represents uh, the vast majority of our nation right now, are protesting against a long history of being sinned against in ways too numerous to enumerate. Most of us who live in this nation had ancestors who immigrated here and who chose to be here. And most of the new immigrants who are here today chose to be here. My forefathers were not bought and sold as slaves. They were not counted as three-fifths of a person in our Constitution. They did not need to be emancipated. They were not then given the right to vote, but denied the ability to vote by unjust requirements and terrorist acts by groups like the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacists. They did not suffer under Jim Crow laws and segregation for nearly 100 years. My forebears, whatever their very real challenges to come here and succeed here, were not forced to attend separate schools or to drink from separate drinking fountains or to sit in the back of the bus. They did not need a Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman or Rosa Parks or Dr. Martin Luther King to fight for their basic civil rights or really, most of the time, basic human rights. 
There's a long and painful history that has led us to this moment. I had an interesting experience over the last few months reading Ron Chernow's new biography of Ulysses S. Grant. Chernow is the guy who wrote the book on Hamilton that's become the smash sensation, the basis for the smash sensation of the Broadway show uh, called Hamilton. Uh, I was interested to see his latest work, and so I picked up the like 900-page uh, tome uh, that is his biography of Ulysses S. Grant. I just wanted to read uh, about a little bit of history. I was shocked as I read it, though, to discover how much of Grant's uh, presidency, he was United States president from 1869 to 1877, was spent around the cause of, of reconstruction. He was the second president after Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you know, the way I've kind of heard it is the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation uh, uh, secured rights for freed slaves and other freed uh, African Americans to be able to vote and, and uh, uh, have equal rights under the law in this nation. The fact is, though, of course, the reality is that Ulysses S. Grant and what were called the Radical Republicans fought hard to secure the rights that had supposedly been won in the Civil War, and Reconstruction failed, actually, in that way, and led to the Jim Crow laws under which uh, our black population lived for nearly 100 years. Anyway, it's a long way to say that I found myself constantly underlining uh, uh, references to how bad things were for slaves who had just been freed during that era. I'm just going to read you some things I underlined kind of randomly to give you a sense of something that I didn't know much uh, as I am a history buff that just speaks to how long, how long this struggle has been going on. Clan violence was unquestionably the worst outbreak of domestic terrorism in American history, and Grant dealt with it aggressively. In the congressional elections, Northern voters had sent a clarion message of retreat from black civil rights, protesting Grant's decision to send troops into Louisiana. Racism was omnipresent in the North as well as the South. On December 5th, again, random selections, I'm not even going to try to put them in context. The context is just I want you to hear the words of how the struggle was going on at that time. On December 5th, a bloodless coup occurred in Vicksburg when armed members of the Taxpayers League, the Taxpayers League, the White League in some accounts, seized the Warren County Courthouse, forced the black sheriff Peter Crosby to flee, then chased out the Board of Supervisors. Whites then went on a homicidal spree pulling blacks from their homes and killing them. In the days ahead, armed white men initiated a campaign of killing in the nearby countryside that took up to 300 black lives. Another instance, the need for federal troops hadn't faded, as evidenced by havoc in Hamburg, South Carolina on July 4, 1876. A group of, uh, of, 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 of blacks, as the book says it, ended up in the second story of a building trying to hide from a white militia. 
They couldn't. Uh, they began to be fired on. And then Chernow says, blacks leapt from the windows or climbed down an escape ladder only to be gunned down in cold blood. Five men in a row were executed and three more wounded as they attempted to flee. The black town marshal was shot and his skull smashed in with muskets. The homes of nearly every black family in town were pillaged while mutilated bodies of the murdered men broiled in sunlight for days, their families too petrified to retrieve them. The Hamburg Cartage preceded far worse atrocities in October in Ellington, South Carolina. So widespread was the savagery that the estimated death toll of black victims ran as high as 150. Another, Mississippi remained a racial tinderbox. The outgoing governor's wife pointed out that among the principal men in the state capitol, there is hardly one who has not, by counsel or action, taken some part in the Negro murders. The last one I'll read, Louisiana presented seemingly insurmountable problems. Organized clubs of masked armed men, formed as recommended by the Central Democratic Committee, rode through the country at night, marking their course by the whipping, shooting, wounding, maiming, mutilation, and murder of women, children, and defenseless men. A Senate investigating committee later ascertained that in a single parish, more than 60 black Republicans had been butchered before the election. I could go on and on telling you that as someone who knows something about history, I had no idea the level of struggle, the terrible things that were happening, primarily to newly freed slaves in the years just after the Civil War. This struggle has gone on for a long time in the town that my dad grew up in, in Indiana, a part of the Union, a part of the North, there was, he tells me, and I looked it up today to make sure it's true, there was a sign at the city limits of Greensburg, Indiana, that said, whites only, after dark. I spoke to an African-American friend uh, just this week, someone I've been pretty close to for uh, more than a decade. He told me a story I'd never heard before. His dad was a West Point graduate and um, an officer in the U.S. Army. Uh, he rose to a high rank, but my friend told me that how when his dad and, and, and then uh, his mom and then their young family would be transferred from post to post, that they would travel along uh, across large swaths of this country he was serving and would not be able to stay and sleep in a motel or a hotel because blacks were not allowed during segregation. It's amazing for me to understand that during my lifetime, 55 years ago, segregation was still the law of the land, but it was. So history has unraveled in such a way to where we come to the events of the recent weeks. I'm no expert, but, but, but I, I, I can at least uh, say what, what others are saying. You know, we discovered that COVID-19, which has affected all of us, has disproportionately affected the black community and other minority communities. Uh, this is a result not of 
an immediate thing. It's a result of hundreds of years of difficult history that has affected the health and the access to health care of millions of people. And then we see the death of Ahmad Arbery in Georgia, gunned down while simply jogging through a neighborhood. And then we witness the horrific death of George Floyd. And it's like people are able to capture the attention now of an entire nation with all these things happening before our very eyes and to say, see, this moment is a snapshot of what we've been suffering for hundreds of years. Part of what I hear my black friends and colleagues and congregants say is that they often feel alone in the midst of this struggle. And I feel like I need to say again, you are not alone because we are in this together. So I'd like, if I may, to offer three thoughts on how to be in this together. They're not comprehensive thoughts. They're not gonna fix all of our problems. But just as a pastor who cares about his congregation, I just wanna offer three thoughts that, that might be helpful to us during this time. The first one is to say that we must learn to listen with our hearts. We must learn to listen with our hearts. First, a somewhat funny story, at least funny to my wife and funny to my friend Dan Dean, who most of you know. Years ago, I was speaking in Dallas, Texas, where Dan uh, was lead pastor of Heartland Church. And uh, one night, we went out to dinner at a nice Mexican restaurant. We were sitting there eating spicy food and Dan and his wife Becky started to recount in great detail to me and Sharon a, a terrible traffic accident she had had where her neck was broken and then began to describe the medical uh, procedure that followed that included uh, drilling into her skull the halo that most of you would uh, uh, know something about. And as they talked and as I ate, I found myself feeling sick. Um, and uh, I could no longer feel my arms and my chest was uh, uh, hurting and my heart was pounding and I ended up uh, laying down in the booth uh, uh, that was uh, uh, joined to the booth we were sitting in and I thought I was having a heart attack. And they did too, and they rushed me to the emergency room, and I was put through a battery of tests. And finally the doctor came out and he said, your heart is fine. He said, it's pretty clear that you have some form of a condition. I don't think I can pronounce it properly, but I'll try vasovagal syncope, uh, which is a condition where some people at the sight of blood will faint. He said, I had some condition of that, and as I sat there and, and, and ate, and I heard them talk uh, and tell the story of the pain that Becky had been in, I thought that my heart was going to explode. Well, I know it's not right, but Sharon and Dan, when they came to see me laying there shirtless, strapped to all kind of machinery in the hospital, started to laugh uh, and have laughed ever since about this 
condition that I have. The truth is, I have trouble visiting a hospital because when I see people in pain, especially people I care about, I sometimes feel like that I need to maybe uh, get in the bed uh, next to them because I feel like that I'm about to faint. Well, sadly, that physical condition has not always translated to my emotional life. What I, what I mean is that I wish that when I hear someone uh, tell their life experience and talk about the pain of their life that may not be a physical pain, but very real pain, I wish that my heart could feel it at that kind of level, not my physical heart, my heart that's the seat of my feelings and my emotions. What's happened over the years though is more and more I have learned to listen with my heart. I have learned to hear what others are experiencing in a way that I actually feel it. And when we learn to do that, we then have learned a discipline called, of course, empathetic listening. To listen empathetically is to enter into another person's experience and connect with it in such a way that you actually experience to some degree what the other person is experiencing. Empathy comes from uh, two Greek words meaning in and feeling. It's as if you are in the feeling of another. Well, part of what we need, I think, to be able to understand the experiences of someone different than us is at least in part to be able to enter into their pain, to feel what they feel. Jesus, uh, on one occasion in the Gospel of Matthew, spoke to a crowd to hear him, and he said, listen and try to understand. See, I think sometimes we listen, but we don't understand. Stephen Covey very famously said that we must seek to understand before we seek to be understood. Jesus said, listen to understand. On another occasion, he said that someone might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn. And then he said, I would heal them. He said, I don't want you just to see with your eyes, hear with your ears, but I want you to understand with your heart. And I want that to cause you to turn, and then I would be able to heal you. I think that all of us need to get better at what it means to understand with our hearts. One of the great blessings of my life has been hearing the stories of people who are different than me and doing life with people who are different than me. I can't imagine how small my life would be if that hadn't have been my experience over especially the last 28 years or so that I've had the privilege to serve this very diverse congregation. I could tell story after story, and I have told story after story and written about some of these stories. You know, watching t the verdict of the O.J. Simpson trial with, a, with an African-American friend and reacting, I reacted to the verdict 
Like, according to the polls, most white people in the country reacted. I thought he was guilty. To be frank, I still do, but that's not the point. My African-American friend acted differently than I did. He acted like most African-Americans in this country did, again, according to the polls. And we had a, an amazing discussion that was a turning point in my life. This, of course, is going back years, when he looked at me and said, you do not understand what it is to be a black man in America. And something about the way he said it that particular day was a moment when my heart was able to understand and I was able to make a turn and it became an important part of my, my learning, feeble though it is, about this particular subject or issue or whatever we should call it. It was at this, at least I understood that I didn't understand the experience of a black man in America. That was an amazing moment where my heart, for some reason, was able to feel. And to know how much that I didn't know and needed to learn about the black experience in this country. I, you know, could talk about conversations I've had with African-American men who I respect, strong, successful men, talking about being pulled over uh, by a law enforcement officer and uh, feeling that they were treated unfairly because of the color of their skin and feeling terrorized in that moment. Um, I... Uh, just probably 18 months ago had a very impactful conversation with an African-American woman who talked about the conversations that she and her husband have with their two beautiful uh, sons about how to conduct themselves if they ever would get into a confrontation with law enforcement. Now see, that's not my experience. I didn't have to have those kinds of conversations with my sons. I don't claim to understand all of that or even very much of that but I know that this is the experience the suffering of people who I love and who are a part of me according to the teachings of Scripture and I've had to try to learn to listen to understand I think another thing that I would say about listening empathetically is that we need if I may suggest this to listen reciprocally without judgment we need to be able to have conversations, especially within our local church, especially with other believers, but in our society at large as well. We need to be able to have honest conversations. If I listen to understand, then I need to be able to speak so that I can be understood as well. In order for this to happen, we need to be able to trust each other. Henry Cloud, in his wonderful book, Integrity, said that one of the Hebrew words translated trust in the Old Testament means to be careless. To trust means to be careless. He said, it means that you do not have to worry about how to take care of yourself with that person because he is going to be worried about that too. It means that you do not have to guard yourself with her because she is going to be concerned with what is good for you and what is not good for you. You do not have to watch your back with him because he is going to be watching it for you. I love that. If we're going to talk, if we're really going to talk about difficult and controversial issues, we need to be able to speak to one another without being judged. 
The truth is many of us are frightened to have the kind of conversations that we really need to have to understand each other. We're, we're frightened because we're afraid that we might say the wrong thing, say uh, something the wrong way, express an idea perhaps that's offensive to someone else or not well thought through or perfectly shaped. But the reality is, if we're going to really have conversations, we need to learn to be able to trust each other and to, to respect the, 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 the person that the other is and to allow them to share their thoughts and to feel like we're able to share ours as well. On one hand, being very careful about what we say, but on the other hand, being able to be careless in that we can say, this is really what I feel. This is really what I've experienced. This is a question that I have. This is something that I don't understand. Uh, one of the things that I've been blessed with over the years is that I've been surrounded by people not like me in any uh, 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 number of ways who have been patient with me when I just didn't get it uh, about any number of things, including racial issues. We just need to be able to trust each other in that way. Uh, there's a great story, uh, actually, that I tell in, in, in my book, The Hospital Leader, about Martin Luther King Jr.'s relationship with John F. Kennedy. This is when segregation was raising, uh, pardon me, raging. If I remember right, this is the election in 1960 and prior to the election, Martin Luther King had a, had a discussion with John F. Kennedy. And, and he said this about that discussion. He said that Kennedy knew that segregation was morally wrong and he certainly intellectually committed himself to integration but I could see that he didn't have the emotional involvement then. He had not really been involved enough in and with the problem. He didn't know too many Negroes personally, obviously King's word. He had never really had the personal experience of knowing the deep groans and passionate yearnings of the Negro for freedom because he just didn't know. Negroes generally, and he hadn't had any experience in the civil rights struggle. Dr. King then went on to share that after John F. Kennedy won the nomination, they had another conversation, and this is what Dr. King said. I talked with him over at his house in Georgetown, and in that short period, he had really learned a great deal about civil rights. And then finally, after President Kennedy's assassination, Dr. King offered this. He said Kennedy's last speech on race relations was the most earnest human and profound appeal for understanding and justice that any president has uttered since the first days of the Republic. What do I like about that story? I think it might be obvious. I like the fact that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the midst of that great struggle for which he gave his life, when he began his relationship with John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy just wanted to understand but didn't understand or have an emotional engagement with what those Dr. King represented were experiencing. But King didn't stand up and condemn him. He didn't offer judgment. He, he, he didn't stand up and call him a racist. He instead continued the conversation and over time, John F. Kennedy did what all of us are able to do if we want to. He grew in that understanding in a way that ended up helping to lead to the Voting Rights Act of 1964, I believe it was, and so on. 
We need to be able to have honest conversations and sometimes even to overlook one another's ignorance about things that are important to us in order that we can help each other grow. If I may, I'd like to encourage you this week to have at least one conversation with someone from a different background or point of view where you can listen with your heart and where you can uh, have a conversation in order to better understand. It'd be interesting, for instance, for a police officer to speak to a black man and to say, what are some things you think I need to know about black men in general? And, and what you have and are experiencing with law enforcement in this country. And conversely, if you're angry at law enforcement, it, and, and I say angry at law enforcement in general, it might be good to sit down with a police officer and to ask, what are you experiencing right now? And how can I pray for you? Here's the second thing. I want to offer as a thought on how we can be together. It's this, that we must act in love. We must act in love. Look, Jesus summed up the whole law by offering what he called the greatest commandment. He said it's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said the second is, is this. It's to love your neighbor as you love yourself. We really shouldn't overcomplicate what Jesus made simple. We simply must consider what it means to love our neighbor, the other, as we love ourselves. James called this the royal law. He wrote, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. The royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. We have to remember, simple as it is, that Christian relationships, especially with people who are different than us, are not based in being tolerant. Christian relationships are based in love. And that's a high standard. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Here are some ways that we can act in love right now during this time in addition to having a conversation with someone like I uh, proposed a moment ago. I, I also think that the three things I want to mention right now might be helpful as well just to keep us focused on the right things as followers of Jesus and as members of the body of Christ who are suffering with one another. The first is to repent. It's to repent. Jesus said, don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? 
you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus spoke those words, I believe, to each of us. It's so easy for us to judge the other, but Scripture calls us, first of all, to judge ourselves. And the truth is that regardless our brother or sister's issue, we all have issues, and we all need to pray the prayer that that the psalmist prayed in the 139th Psalm, search me, O God, know my heart, see if there is any offensive way in me. The second way that I think perhaps we can act in love is to pray. I've suggested this a number of times, but, 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 but I offer it again. We need to pray for people. We need to pray against the evil that influences people and systems and institutions and governments and so on. Jesus said, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but you have heard it was said, I'll read it again, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. We are to pray for our enemies. Christianity offers a standard of love that is a high mark, but we have to remember that before we are anything else, we are followers of Jesus, and Jesus said, and I find it difficult to do, but he said pray for your enemies. But we're also supposed to pray against the evil that influences people, systems, institutions, governments, and so on. Paul said, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I love the way that's stated in the Living Bible, for we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against persons without bodies. So we pray for people, even those who might be considered our enemies, but we pray against the evil that influences people to do evil things. And then we need to do, which is to say, we need to, all of us, to take action. What difference can we make in this world? What difference can we make in our world? We can't just talk, we can't even just pray. We need all of us to do. Now, let me finish with the third thought about how we can be in this together. It's to say that we must focus on the power of the gospel. The gospel changes hearts. And what we need is we need massive heart change. For me, for TLCC, the focus is on the gospel ever and always. When people believe the good news about Jesus and enter into relationship with him, God begins to change our hearts. I don't believe that the ultimate answer for racism is to focus on racism. And that has never been our focus and it will not be our focus as we move forward. I believe that our focus must always be on Jesus. Who he is, what he did, what he does, what he wants to do in our lives and in our world. God so loved this messed up world that he sent Jesus. See, Jesus is God's answer 
to all of our world's problems. The gospel, the gospel, Jesus coming into our lives, filling us with his spirit, making us more like him. It gives us power to change and it gives us power to affect change. One of my favorite stories about Dr. King uh, is the story about how that one night while he was involved in uh, protest in Birmingham, Alabama, one night he received a call in the middle of the night and someone threatened his life uh, in, in ways uh, that I can't even uh, read. And he said that he got out of bed, he started to walk the floor, that he uh, began to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a, cow- a coward. He thought about his beautiful little girl who had just been born, and he thought about his wife who'd been so loyal and faithful, and um, his life had been under threat for some time, and he, he just said, I, I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. And I'm reading now from the from the so-called autobiography of Martin Luther King Jr. by Claiborne Carson. He said, I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. Something said to me, you can't call on daddy now. You can't even call on mama. You've got to call on that something in that person that your daddy used to tell you about, that power that can make a way out of no way. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right, and I think I'm right. I'm here trying to take a stand for what I believe is right, but Lord, I must confess that I am weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. I'm at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. And then Dr. King said, it seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. And then he wrote, I tell you, I've seen the lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roar. I felt sin breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me alone. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. The gospel which lets us know that through Jesus, we can have a relationship with God the Father and be filled with his very spirit, filled with the presence of the divine. The gospel is what changes us. It's what gives us the courage to go on. It's what gives us the strength to fight the fight. And our focus is always on the power of the gospel. So, let me just say one more thing. And I'm going a little longer this morning than I have been lately. It's because I think it's important that I take the time to say some of the things I'm saying now. I love how that in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he speaks about how that through Jesus, God tore down the, quote, dividing wall of hostility. 
that had stood between Jews and Gentiles for several thousand years. It's hard for us to understand today, but in the first century and in time preceding it and following it, there was a hatred, especially uh, in the Near East between Jew and Gentile. Uh, There was a dividing wall of hostility that stood before them, and yet as the Christian church began to be formed, Jews and Gentiles had begun to worship together and to become one through Jesus Christ. And, and Paul tells them that, that God through Jesus had torn down the dividing wall of hostility and that from these two very different people groups, he was forming one new humanity. It was as if he was, he was creating a new DNA strand. Here's what Ephesians says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And Paul was essentially saying this, if, if through Jesus, the wall of hostility that had divided Jews and Gentiles could be torn down and that together they could begin to make up one new humanity. His point in part was this, then Jesus can do that with any two people. He can do that with any two groups of people. He can take any groups of people and bring them together in peace so that they make one new humanity. See, this is part of the promise of Christianity. It's that through Jesus we can have peace, not only with God, but we can have peace with one another. I wonder, I wonder if we're honest, who when we think of them do we feel hostility? What group of people when we think of them do we feel hostility? Perhaps and maybe even probably with good cause. But what would it be like, what would it be like to ask Jesus to tear down those dividing walls and certainly through the church for us to become truly, truly one. Now we have to live this out. It can't just be a concept. It can't just be a theory. Paul also wrote to the Philippians and he described this one new humanity in another way. He said that we're all citizens of heaven. Whatever happens, he then said, as citizens of heaven, I want to restate this. I want to emphasize it properly. He said, whatever happens, whatever happens, as citizens of heaven, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. What would it be like for us to see ourselves as one with every other member of the body of Christ, What would it be like for us to see our primary loyalty in this world being a loyalty to heaven? The truth is, according to scripture, we're not Americans first or Britons first or Filipinos first. We're not Democrats or Republicans first. We're not black or white or brown first, not first. We're citizens of heaven 
first. We are one new humanity. We are members of Christ, members of his body, members of one another. This is true because of the gospel. And right now, this means that we all suffer because a part of the body is suffering. No one in this church is alone. We are all in this together. I want now to show a prayer that Maria Rice Bellamy prayed this past Thursday night at our drive-in prayer for unity and change meeting. Um, it was amazing if you weren't there or if you, you watched on, if you didn't watch online, it was amazing. And um, some beautiful and, 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 and real and meaningful prayers were prayed, including Maria's. Maria's a, a, a longtime friend, uh, one-time uh, staff team member, uh, uh, board member, and longtime elder here at the Life Christian Church. She's one of the smartest people I know. Just by the way, Harvard ex- educated, Oxford educated, Rutgers PhD'd. Uh, she has been someone who has given me a lot of grace over the 25 or so years that we've known each other and worked together. Uh, and uh, I've learned a lot from Maria. And I'm grateful for her and her husband, Mel. She is a professor of African American literature and director of the program in African and African diaspora studies at the City University of New York, Staten Island University. And um, she prayed a prayer that she says she's been praying regularly, a prayer that she wrote a couple of years ago when an event happened in our nation that was distressing to her. And she, she wanted to take a truly Christian perspective and she wrote a prayer really in her pain that I think is beautiful and be a great, great way for us to end today. And then we're gonna close with uh, hearing the beautiful words of, of blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, and then I'll say the benediction. Father, we acknowledge you today as Lord over this nation and its people. In spite of political volatility and divisiveness, unsettling news, bad reports in our nation, we proclaim that you are still in control. We recognize that you abhor the evils in our society, but you love the people, every single one of us. We thank you that you are deeply concerned for each one of us and that you desire that we all come to know you and live our lives to fulfill your perfect plans and purposes for us. We place before you the troubles of our nation. We recognize that there is nothing new under the sun, that you have seen every form of evil that has ever existed and that you face these evils undaunted and sovereign. We thank you that the battle against evil is not ours but yours, that the fight is not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, and that the victory is yours. Where we may fear the evil in our midst, we declare that no weapon formed against us will prosper, that nothing can separate us from your love, and that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. For this reason, we take heart, we trust in you, and choose to believe your report. We trust you to dismantle the structures of injustice in this nation during our lifetimes, so that we will in fact be one nation under God indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. 
Lord, I pray for the leaders of our nation. I pray that you would surround them with angels of light to dispel any darkness around them and to give them wisdom in their decision making. I pray that the sacred responsibilities bestowed on our leaders will humble them and draw them to you so that they can be saved and filled with your truth. And finally, we ask that you would raise up leaders on the national and local level that will pursue your purposes and inspire your people to build better lives and communities for themselves and for the good of this nation. Father, we stand against fear today because you have not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. We thank you for, that you are the power of the universe and that you share your power with us. So we call on the power of heaven to fight the evils of our society and claim the creative power to speak life, justice, and wholeness into our nation, our communities, our families, and ourselves. And we thank you that your love banishes all fear and reminds us of who we are. We are fearfully and wonderfully made in your image. We are your handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so fill us with your love that we may pour your love out in our homes, our communities, our places of worship, our places of work and throughout this nation. Show us how to fulfill your purposes and do the work you created us to do. We pray that you would enable us to use the talents you've given us to edify those around us. And may the purposes for which you created us and the dreams you've placed in our hearts challenge, inspire, and guide us to new forms of service each and every day. Thank you for blessing us with sound minds to take captive every thought that causes us fear or confusion. And may we instead hold tight to your promises and truths that we may know your peace, make sound godly decisions, envision change, and trust you to bring it to pass. And finally, Lord, may we always be of good cheer knowing that you have overcome the world and trusting in the amazing plans you have for us, for our families, for our communities, and for our nation. In Jesus' name we pray this and we thank you in advance for the answers to these prayers. Amen.